0: Hello everybody and welcome to another one of our series of financial wellbeing podcasts. Uh, my name's David Lloyd, I am uh, a writer, a broadcaster, an actor, a currently, raconteur. raconteur, currently a fellow of the Royal Literary Fund as nice, well, and enjoying nice. that as well. so lots of things I get up to in my life and one of the things that I enjoy very much is sitting down and chatting with my mate uh, Chris Budd, founder of Ovation Finance, about financial wellbeing. Chris. Good
1: morning. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm very good, thank you. A bit. I've been very busy going around the country doing talks to um, groups of financial advisors and e- investment experts, talking about coaching skills for mm-hmm. financial advisors, along with uh, a chap that we had on a previous podcast, number 21, called Neil Bage. Oh yes, I remember that interview, oh, very interesting. Yeah, it was about financial capability, and uh, he's been doing some talks about risk profiling, so I've seen his talk now five times, so I thought I'd nick it <laughs> <Yeah>. very, very <laughs> for this good. podcast, So we're going to be Talking about investment risk and some of his ideas—it's uh, it's some really interesting stuff in there, actually. And uh, <coughs> oh, a, a little. <laughs> Sorry, the man clearing his throat he, in the corner. Ignore him, he's been bigging up his part so much, in the <laughs> last two podcasts, his voice was louder than ours on the recording. Yeah, well, we've we've sorted that out now. We've sat him
0: further away from the microphone. That plaintive cough you heard was, of course, from our producer, Tom Morris. Tomo, the world's one and only tight-ass Tomo. More of that later. How are you, Tom? I'm oh, Very good, thanks. Let's go to the first of our regular features that we've been covering recently on the podcast, and this is our new word. If you remember, it all started with hygge, a Danish word. And generally, we're looking for words that have no direct translation into English, but relate in some way to well-being or doing things that make us happy. So, Chris,
1: what's today's word? Today's word, David, I'm really going to struggle to pronounce. It's a Dutch word, and it is gezelligheid. I think something like that, yes. I'm so sorry Dutch listeners. It's got a variety of meanings depending on the circumstance, but generally it refers to spending time with friends in a nice environment. I think the closest word we would have to it would be togetherness. OK, so so we are
0: currently uh, indulging in gazellaheed. Are we not? I, that might be your interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're friendly, we're together. There's you, me okay, and Tom, I sitting that. in a room. I There's think... a nice atmosphere. <laughs> right, so gazillahi, there we are then. That's another word for you that can help to promote well-being and goodness. And now we're going to move swiftly on to another one of our regular features, Tight Ass Tomo. Now again, this all started for those of you that may not have listened to a podcast before. Um, some podcasts ago, uh, Tomo took Chris and another colleague out for lunch, managed to manipulate them into ordering a particular uh, choice on the menu, and it turned out he managed to get some app off the internet whereby he got some voucher, and he got that really, really cheaply. And uh, and therefore, so Tight Ass Tomo was born. and. Uh, We've been asking for tips from other people as to a way in which we
1: can uh, save money. Chris? Yeah, we've had a brilliant flurry of tips recently. We've uh, had a load from a financial advisor in Raynham. Essex, called Chris Deems, who is at Chris Deems, D-A-E-M-S on followed, He followed me on Twitter yesterday, I followed go. him back. Oh, he's a lovely guy, Chris, and he gave us a load, in fact he, he got a bit carried away, I think if I'm honest, and has written a blog um, with a whole, whole batch of Taita Stomo tips, so we're going to read a few out over the next few podcasts So, here's a couple to start us off with Number one, benefit from the complimentary food and wine at a free networking event by inviting your wife and calling it Date Night <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) I remember that one. (laughs) Surely he doesn't do that one for real. And the other one, pocket those precious pound coins by telling your six-year-old daughter that the Tooth Fairy is really busy at the moment and only pays out on every third tooth. Well, (laughs) I once, when my son was very, very young,
0: had to leave an IOU from the Tooth Fairy (laughs) because we didn't have any money in that. I only had notes. I wasn't leaving him a tenner. Uh, I've had a more sensible one, actually, from uh, Gus Hoyt. Uh, at Mr. Green Gus on Twitter. Carry a reusable water bottle. You'll be healthier and save tons. The average Brit spends £23,000 on bottled water and fizzy drinks
2: in life. Right, what is this week's Titas Tomo tip? Drum roll. The anticipation. So I went away with the in-laws, and my sister-in-law and her chat, and we were sat round the table and I said, you know what, when I got go back, I've got a podcast to do and I need a tip. Anyone got any good ones? And they said, oh, I think I got one, Tom. Go on. Who was this that said this? This is the sister-in-law. The sister-in-law, okay. Yep. Carla, hello. Her boyfriend, just before they went away, you know, you take the magazines to you to read on the plane. Easy. They're quite expensive, four or five, <laughs> careful now. You're close magazines, that sort of thing. Yeah. He went into the recycling bin of his neighbours to find <laughs> some additions <laughs> for her to read. That's a brilliant idea. Yep. They well, were six months old. The sharing economy. It's recycling, recycling isn't it? That's yes. what it is. Yeah, yes. there you go. But I, I have to add they live in some flats. They didn't just wander down the street to open up someone's box. It was, it was <laughs> a shared recycling.
1: <laughs> I area. like that. The sharing economy, we talked yeah. about before with George Ferguson on a previous podcast. Yeah. And actually sharing your reading materials, unless mm. it's a book. Somebody said to me recently, Oh, I'm reading your novel. Oh, that's very kind. Which one? Bridge of Straw. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Oh, did you get it from Amazon? No, I got it from a friend. Oh. <laughs> that's
0: another 2p you're not going to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, enough of this
1: nonsense. Let's get down to the meat of today's podcast. What what, what is it, Chris? We're going to talk about investment risk, which is possibly one of the most misunderstood areas of finance. Okay. well, I get the point that people should engage with their money, but why should they care about the level of risk that they're taking? Everybody is invested in the stock market, pretty much. Anybody with a pension fund is invested in the stock market. I did a talk to a load of um, employees in a, a company, and there were about 60 of them, and I asked who's invested in the stock market, and two people put their hand up. And then I asked, how many of you have got a pension fund, part of the company pension scheme? Everybody put their hands up. And I said to them, "Look, you are all invested in the stock market. You have no idea what level of risk your funds are taking. You have level of, no idea what level of risk you need them to take. You need to engage with your money more. So, understanding what investment risk means and understanding your own approach to it is absolutely crucial in getting a clear path to identifiable objectives." So, to give an example, I saw a client many years ago who was in his mid-sixties, declared himself to be a cautious investor, and yet when I looked into his um, assets he had the main asset was a share portfolio which was made up of three shares now I'd suggest that's a pretty high risk share portfolio and yet he declared that he wasn't comfortable with owning such an asset so there was a complete mismatch between what he did and what he declared himself to be. So that's why I think it's really a really important area that people understand what investment risk really means. Okay, and how do we know what level of risk we want or indeed might need to take? Oh, that's an absolutely key point. How much we need to take is probably a much bigger question. What should happen is whenever somebody goes to see a financial advisor, or if they go online um, and, and do it directly themselves, they will need to establish what is their attitude to investment risk, which is known in the business as an ATR, attitude to risk. Almost always, this will be in the form of a questionnaire. You'll answer 10 questions, either with your advisor or before uh, what we call robo-advice, the online systems, before they let you into the investments. They will get you to complete this as well. And I would suggest that that questionnaire is really just at the very least the beginning of the conversation about risk but very often it is that's it that's the entire job done Tick a few questions we now know what level of risk you are
0: yes that's interesting so in 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 my experience i uh, have been with ovation for quite a few years now and getting advice from you and uh, well ian is the guy that i normally deal with now and i remember sitting down and doing that questionnaire a few years ago and now every year when I have my review meeting with him uh, he sits down and he chats with me he just checks in with me about where I'm at in my life and obviously my life's gone through quite a few changes over over the last few years as indeed everybody else's life does and, and what I've always appreciated it's all it's interesting my relationship with Ian now isn't necessarily just one about that between a client and a financial advisor but he's become a uh, it's almost like a confessional as well and, <laughs> and we can talk about but actually that's quite important because you know, the way my life is going, I want it to go in a certain direction and that needs me to fully engage with the financial side of things so therefore he needs to understand what's happening in my life. And so we talk about some quite personal things and I'm certainly very comfortable with that because I know it helps him go on to give me the best
2: advice that I can possibly get. And if I, I could just jump in at this point, although the questionnaire gives a score, it's really only the starting point of the conversation. And I think you said that was your certainly your experience mm. was actually it was just give us an idea of where we start from and talk about risk, but exactly. it, it, it kicks out of school, but that is not the result and what you should be investing in, a bigger conversation is needed from that. And the
0: advantage that I've had from that, from the fact that Ian has been around the company for a while now, is that you develop that relationship
1: and you get to know each other quite well. And I think that's mutually very beneficial. And what that translates to is your investment portfolio that you might set up. Like a portfolio, it could be a £1,000, it doesn't have to be huge. But it will be made up of what's called different asset classes. And th- each different asset class has different characteristics. So, for example, cash is low risk, low return. Stock market might be more more risky, but hopefully we'll get better returns. But it will be up and down. So what your level of risk is then needs to translate into how your money is managed. Now, here's the interesting thing. Neil Bage uh, of BIQ that I've been doing these talks to, one of the slides that he shows shows that of people are assessed at a higher level of risk than their actions would suggest that they are actually comfortable with. So through these questionnaires, you're asked questions and it assesses you in the level of risk. And then when you actually test that, the level of risk they're actually comfortable with is lower. And do you think that comes from a lack of understanding
0: of the financial market or the fact that they just, although they might say they're not interested in taking
1: much risk, they don't actually know what's involved with it. That is what I'm going to go on to explain,
2: why that is the case. It's interesting. I mean, over the years, I've noticed that people are often surprised when we show them the results of their risk profiling. And so it goes back to Chris's point about actually it doesn't relate to the score that they they think they are and it does start an interesting conversation. A questionnaire is just a starting point. Wow, so, oh, hold hard, amigo. (laughs) This, I mean, this sounds quite
0: serious. So are you actually saying that people who have an investment portfolio, which is based on the result of a series of, what we're saying, 10 questions, either with an advisor or online, is likely to end up with a portfolio which takes a higher level of risk
1: than they're actually likely to be comfortable with? If that portfolio is solely based upon the results of that test, then yes, Neil's research would suggest that it's exactly the case. Jaw drops in amazement. <laughs> now, Given this, I thought it'd be worth taking a look at what investment risk is and how and why the current approach is so
0: flawed. Wow. OK, before we go any further with this, are we going to get into trouble here? Because presumably there's an entire industry uh, with lots and lots of money invested into it that's built around risk profiling, this sort of risk profiling that you're talking about and are you really suggesting it's flawed and if so aren't all of these other people that make a lot of money out of doing it, can they be a little bit annoyed with you? for suggesting this. Could this be the
1: last podcast we ever do (laughs) before I find myself languishing in jail? Well, look, this is based on Neil's extensive research of both the UK and US population. He's out there talking about it, so they can sue him, not us, hopefully. (laughs) I did ask him if he's comfortable with me talking about his ideas on the podcast. He said he'd be delighted. What we're not saying is that the questionnaires are flawed. Okay, what we're saying is it's a one-dimensional way If you really want to understand the risk profile of a person, you need more information. But his research would suggest that if you only use the questionnaire, the portfolios end up being higher risk than a person is comfortable with. It's also worth pointing out that Neil is not the only one saying this. The uh, regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, they reached the same conclusion a few years ago, and other regulators from the world are beginning to suggest the same thing. uh, Neil mentions a report from uh, the Canadian regulator that's saying the same thing. You know, it sounds a little bit like on Have I Got News for You, where they preface every controversial statement with allegedly. Is that what what we're saying here? (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Right. So, okay. So, allegedly, then, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, let's look at. Let's now back this up with some with some knowledge, right? I think that would be good. (laughs) (laughs) Why are we making this statement? The first reason is something called framing. Now, in simple terms, this means how we answer a question depending upon the person who is asking us the question. For example, let's say a friend asks how you are. One of my bugbears this, because whenever I go into the office and I say, how are you, I'm not too bad. Mm. What does that mean, not too bad? Fine, fine. Uh, It means I'm bad, but I'm not too bad. (laughs) That's the answer you get um, in the office. But if you go to a doctor and the doctor says, how are you, you're going to tell them about your bad back or Mm. whatever it might be. So the situation in which you find yourself frames the answer that you give to a question okay so well let's let's bring it back to me then something i'm always comfortable
0: with uh, uh, <laughs> in terms of risk if anybody at Avation, as my financial advisor were to ask me how much risk i'm comfortable with my answer is going to be influenced this is what you're saying by the fact that i'm sitting with the very people who manage my investments
1: exactly um, you might be answering what you think they want you to say the fact that you're in a room of an investment advisor and financial planner means that you think you're answering the question as it relates to investment. Um, whereas if you're standing on top of a bridge 500 feet above a raging torrent about to a bungee jump and somebody asks you how much risk you are like to, likely to take, your answer is probably going to be a bit lower. I think it would be. So... That's one thing. Framing, um, how we how we put the question, where, where we are when the question is put, who asks us the question? My favourite answer, by the way, I may have said this one before, but I love it, uh, was the chap who, when I said, what level of risk are you comfortable with? He said, I don't know. What does everybody else do? <laughs> <laughs> so, secondly, we have the fact that we are unable to predict our future behaviour. Yeah, get that. Okay. Um, this is a really, really important point, but we are always... Thinking about the future, but we are unable to genuinely predict what we're going to be doing in the future. Now, one of the questions that very often comes up in these questionnaires is something along the lines of, how would you react if the value of your investments were to go down by 20%? Um, Well, all right, let me answer that
0: question. Uh, I'd probably hang on because uh, I would be thinking of it as a
1: long-term investment. Fantastic. And that's because you would be sitting in your investment advisor's office, and that's what you think he wants to hear. The truth is, if you actually saw your money go down by 20%, you'd probably, what's the technical phrase, cack yourself? Well,
0: actually, this I mean, this, this happened not 20%, but I know certainly recently, a year or two ago, I looked at my portfolio and actually the value seemed to have come down, and I remember talking to Ian about it, I said, well, hang on a minute, that that bottom line figure is lower than it was whatever it was six months ago, and he was able to explain to me very simply and very clearly why that was
1: but he said don't worry he said in six months time you come back it'll be right up there again and indeed it it was and that's because you have an advisor able to help you manage your behavior Hmm. but without any help and often even with that help (laughs) the facts are that money goes into the stock market when it's rising to its peak and money comes out of the stock market as it's nearing its bottom. People react the opposite way in which they perhaps would predict that they would react. So this is called present bias. And I think it's a really, really interesting point. Could you give me an example of that? Yeah, OK. So, so let me offer you a choice, OK? So let's say I'm offering you £50 right now on the table. There you go. Or if you're prepared to wait a week, I'll give you £51. Which would you choose?
0: Well, I think that would depend very much on my circumstances w- where I was at now. In my current situation, I'd wait a week and have for 51 pounds. Uh, if I was really, really skint and didn't have any money and I needed to pay a bill or I needed 50 pounds and that was the only access to 50 pounds that
1: I had, I'd take it now. Right, you're sitting on the fence. Tomo, <laughs> 50 quid now, 51 quid in a week. What would you take? One pound's not enough. I take, I take the 50, 50 okay. quid now. I think most people would just say, oh, there's no point in waiting a week, I'll take the 50 quid now. That's called present bias. How much are you prepared to wait? Because what I can then do is I can say, OK, I'll give you 50 quid now, or 60 quid in a week's time, mm-hmm. or 70 quid in a week's time. Now what's your decision? At what level do you say, I'll wait a week? And that is a way of testing somebody's what's called present bias. Well, I would always wait the week, though, even if it was only for a pound, unless I absolutely needed
0: the money now. That's the point I'm making. Obviously, the more the more you get in a week's time, the better it is. But actually, a pound in a week's time is still more than the £50 that I would have now. OK,
1: so that's you. Yeah. That's you. Everyone's different. And this is the point. Everyone is different. And that's why this needs to be tested. Yeah, everyone is different, but I'm the only one that's right. <laughs> <laughs> The next thing that we can point to that needs to be looked at as well as these risk questionnaires, the attitude to risk, is the fact that we react to negative things more than to positive things. So let me give you an example. Um, Let me suggest that I've got two pots of yogurt here. Okay, one is advertising itself as containing 20 percent fat and the other one is advertising itself by saying it's 80 percent fat free. Now, which would you choose? I would suggest most people would probably go for the eighty percent fat-free, because it sounds better. Yes, but it's the same. It's exactly the same thing. Exactly the same. But if you look at advertising, this is this this is how a lot of things are advertised, because we react to positive things more than we will react to negative things. So, when we talk about the stock market and investments, for example, we will react more if the stock market goes down than if it goes up or when you say react
0: as you mean we we might panic and yeah. might say oh my god my money's going down and i need to do something about it sell
1: sell sell yeah. I'll take precisely. Money now precisely yes and that this comes on to a concept called loss aversion loss aversion means that we react to losing something 3.7 times more strongly than an equivalent gain Where's that stat come from? This is Neil's research. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? So if we see our investments go down, we get almost four times more upset than if we see our investments go up. Well, that's understandable, isn't it? If you actually, I mean, clearly, if you're taking the long-term view
0: as you will have learned to do through your experience in the financial market. All the same, when it does go down, like we had the blip a year or two it's ago. It's not nice. It's not nice. You think, well, I know they've told me
1: that it's going to go up, and I know I mustn't mm. worry, but, but you have, when you see it go down… You have an advisor stopping you from taking action that would be against your best interests. Yeah. Not everybody does. Mm. So loss aversion is stronger in some people than others. It's it's the reason why we financial advisors get so annoyed when you see on the news phrases like billions were wiped off the value of shares today, but you never see billions were added to the value of shares today. That's the nature of news, but people react much more strongly to the loss and to the gain. So our job is to assess how strong the loss aversion is in each person. Another point about why Attitude to Risk questionnaires aren't enough is that um, some of the questions are open to interpretation. For example, take this question which is in some questionnaires. Would your friends describe you as a risk taker?
0: Well, I suppose it would depend on which friends you ask. I have to say I have done some incredibly risky things in my life. I'm never averse to taking a risk. I tend to be slightly more cautious when it comes to money, though. I think I think, I think. Well, I have what would medium. your friends
1: say? That's the question oh, okay. on the questionnaire. What would your friends say? And as you say, it depends which friend you ask and what you're discussing. Mm. If you're playing poker with some pennies for a bit of a laugh, then you might be taking quite a lot of risk. But if you're out skiing and discussing shall we hit the black ski run or not, for example, you get a very different answer. So that's, a I suggest, well, Neil suggests a flawed question. OK, so... This all tells
0: us to perhaps be wary of the results of a risk questionnaire, I get that. If, if we've got to be wary of that questionnaire, what actually can we do in order to work out what our attitude
1: to risk should be? Well, there's a few simple principles, but basically it all comes down to that one golden principle which we keep coming back to, which is know thyself. So rather than just assessing the attitude to risk through a questionnaire also try and understand your present bias, your loss aversion, and factor all of these together. Uh, Neil is developing a tool that will help people to do this, but this is what a conversation with your financial advisor can also do. And then there's a simple fact that you mentioned earlier on, how much risk do you need to take? Or to put it another way, how much can you afford to lose? Which is a principle known as
2: capacity for loss. Can I step in here? If your advisor or online tool asks you for your capacity for loss, it's flawed. Capacity for loss is something your advisor should be telling you, not the other way round. So what is capacity for loss, Tom? So we've just talked about the risk questionnaire and know thyself. That's all about the emotional side of risk. Actually, this is about your financial ability to take risk. So I'm going to read the description by the Financial Conduct Authority, and their description of capacity for loss is... The customer's ability to absorb falls in the value of their investment, if any loss of capital would have a material detrimental effect on their standard of living, this should be taken into account in assessing the risk that they are able to take. How and much money you could afford to lose. Exactly. Mm. Plain English. And, and that's it. And this takes time to work out. It, I'd say there's two areas of this. It's the time scale of your investments and what proportion of your investments... Is this of your overall wealth? So say, for example, you've got 30 years till you need to touch this. Well, you've probably got a larger capacity for loss because you've got time for it to recover. If, for example, you are a wealthy person and this represents 10% of your overall wealth, this investment, it's likely that you can afford to take a bit more risk with that. You could also look at things like well, if I did lose this money, what effect would it have on me to be able to pay the bills? So this is really, really key for those who are using the pot in, say, retirement, are really drawing down on their pension now because a big drop in value is going to have a detrimental impact on their ability to fund their lifestyle over the long term. And you work all this out by doing some, what we call a cash flow forecast,
1: um, which in the Financial Wellbeing book, in our website, there's a simple spreadsheet people can use to do it themselves, or this is what a good financial planner will do for you. So it's a number that we give to clients, not the other way around. And it informs how much risk you need to take. So if somebody says they're very high risk and they're nine on a scale of... 10 where 10 is highest we might say we don't need to be taking that much risk Mm -hmm. and therefore they're able to come down so uh, that's something that people can actually do for themselves to work out their what they need their attitude to risk to be well fascinating stuff is there anything practical then that people can go away and do yeah um, first of all that thing we were talking about the 50 quid now or 60 quid in a week's time think about that Um, if someone always tends to choose the immediate reward um, rather than a bigger future-based reward they're likely to react to stock market movements either way good or bad bad because their short-term view kicks in um, compounded by loss aversion good because they see the opportunity to buy the shiny thing they've always wanted So that's one thing. Secondly, try and remember a time that you lost something. At some point, we've all lost a wallet. Did you get stressed and get annoyed and really upset? Or did you just shrug and call the bank to cancel the the debit cards? What time do you arrive for a flight? Mrs B will arrive two hours before the gate closes. I'm with Mrs B on this one, definitely. (laughs) Whereas I like to turn up, as I did the other day, about five minutes before the gate closes. That, That just shows a different attitude in how you feel about investment risk and about how you might react to markets changing.
2: I think it's know thyself. Mm -hmm. It's know thyself, it's know your emotional response to risk. And that is really key. But I think capacity for loss is the most important thing here because you can have a very high emotional capacity to risk, but if you cannot afford it, it would have a huge detrimental impact on your life if you went into a high risk investment, for example, and you lost a, a huge amount of your money and you couldn't absorb that loss. So go through the capacity for loss exercise, go through a simple cash flow, and
1: see what the outcome is. Um, You'll have to make an assumption on growth in that capacity for loss. And if you have to assume, let's say 2% uh, above inflation to get what you want, then you need to take some investment risk. If it's, 8% above inflation to get what you want, that's probably more than you can afford and you need to change some of your future expectations. So there's some practical things that people can do to help understand themselves a bit better. And I know that you're not actually generally keen to use these podcasts as a way of
0: touting for business or indeed necessarily saying to people they have to go and see a financial advisor. But it does sound to me that this is a particular area where you really do need to understand the way in which the market works. You need to understand your attitude to risk and so indeed would an advisor need to really know how you tick in order to make that work. So it seems to me that the relationship between client and advisor in getting their heads around this crucial subject is
1: very, very important indeed. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I am absolutely keen not to say you should all have a financial advisor. If you do, I would suggest it should be one that does cash flow forecasting and would probably call themselves a financial planner. Uh, But if you don't, there are online tools to do cash flow forecasting. Um, There's ours. There's a company called 7IM. Their app has a free cash flow tool. I think the DWP have one to download. So you can do it yourselves. Obviously, I think you'd be better served by using a decent financial planner. But people can do this stuff themselves if they can't afford to engage somebody. Well, that's been a fascinating look, actually, into,
0: um, I won't say controversial, but it's certainly an an area of the business that you've certainly opened my eyes to. So uh, this could then be the last one of these podcasts, (laughs) because we could be in prison next time we sit around to do one. But hopefully that won't be the case. We could still do the podcast from prison. That might be quite interesting, actually. It could be, actually. The acoustics wouldn't be very good. It's been great to sit and chat with uh, Tom Morris, Chris Bud. My name's David Lloyd. Join us again next time for another one of our Financial Wellbeing podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk.
2: You can follow us on Twitter at finwellbeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This
0: has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Well-Being podcast. More interesting than you might think.
1: Never kept a dollar past sunset, always burned a hole in my pants.